Hello, everyone. Today, we're going to be discussing translating consensus guidelines updates to clinical practice, best practice used for negative pressure wound therapy with installation. I'll be your, your moderator and your first faculty. My name is Paul Kim. I'm a professor in the Department of Plastic Surgery and the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of Texas Southwestern. I'm also the medical director of the wound program at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. My co-presenter will be Ibi Yunus, who is a consultant plastic surgeon, president of the Royal Society of Medicine, Royal Free Hospital, uh, University College Hospital, London, United Kingdom. These are the following learning objectives. Number one, review appropriate patient selection and characteristics for the use of MPWT ID with various dressing types. Number two, explore updated recommendations regarding topical wound solution selection. Number three, employ best practice use for NPWTID, including appropriate application settings and adjunctive and expanded use applications. This program was approved for one CME, CNE, CPME, and AAPA credit. You will be redirected back to the landing page after the webcast to complete the post-test and evaluation. You can then download or print your certificate. This program is provided by the North American Center for Continuing Medical Education, LLC, and HMP Company. This is also supported by an educational grant from 3M Healthcare Medical Solutions Division. I want to start first by talking about, in general, our patient population, our current environment. Um, I want to start with this equation. I call it the wound healing potential equation. Essentially, what I'm trying to describe here is that we're not just dealing with bacteria perfusion and tissue mechanics as driving healing potential, but we're also dealing with the host, which may be the most important factor in determining whether a patient goes on to heal or not. We're also driven by these external factors, if you will, including economics of how we decide on using one therapy over another, uh, on trying to improve the efficiency of delivery of care that we provide, and the available evidence as manifested through its efficacy and effectiveness of the selected device or drug or biologic. When we think about negative pressure, things have changed quite a bit. When we thought about negative pressure, we thought about treatment of a wound and opening in the skin, but this has changed radically. We see lots of different uh, applications of this device and this technology, including incisional management, open abdomen, portable negative pressure, and today we're going to be focusing on installation with negative pressure. And we'll also talk a little bit about the waffle design, which is a new design of the contact foam that's used. There has been a radical evolution of negative pressure and its uses and its modifications. We remember not too long ago that standard wound care included wet-to-wet or wet-to-dry packing. It still has its place, by the way, but negative pressure, when it was first introduced, it radically changed how we approach these wounds. Then with the development with, of negative pressure wound therapy with installation with perhaps an antimicrobial agent, it again changed how we approach these wounds. Now a new, new modification of the foam design, and this novel foam design, is again really pivotally changed how we approach uh, these patients. And these other further future modifications in this technology will again be very disruptive as far as how we manage our wound patients. If you look at the literature, this is a publication that myself and my fellow had published several years ago. We reviewed the evidence of negative pressure. Some things were very interesting when we looked at the overall number of publications in this space. When we mapped this out as a figure in 1994, the first VACs came out, the first negative pressure devices came out. And then over time, there really wasn't wasn't much movement in this space up until about 2006. And what happened in 2006 was the Lancet, the pivotal paper was published uh, discussing the efficacy of negative pressure wound therapy. Then we see another bump here between 2011 and 2013. And what happened during that period of time is that negative pressure went portable, which is a very novel use of negative pressure. And then again, there was another bump between 2014 and and after that, where negative pressure wound therapy with installation and incisional negative pressure really came about and made significant impacts. Another way to think about negative pressure therapy with installation is by looking at it as a house. In the foundation, there's standard negative pressure. 
the walls are built with insulation. Now we have a novel foam, which is uh, the sort of the roof of the house, if you will. The important thing about this figure is to, to understand that the uh, installation is built on standard air pressure and the novel foam is built on installation. Without that foundation, this device is, is not going to be as effective as you would have liked. For those of you who've never used negative pressure wound therapy with installation, essentially it's mirroring two different technologies or two different approaches, if you will, of standard negative pressure and that of irrigation. Solution essentially soaks on the surface of the wound for a period of time and then it's evacuated. The negative pressure is applied and this, this cycle is programmed in into uh, the device so that you can essentially cater it to whatever your needs are and you can hang, hang whatever kind of solution that you decide. Our experience goes back to essentially 2012, 2013, where we looked at using the installation device, which is the second generation of negative pressure with installation. And we compared that to what our standard of care had been, which was just standard negative pressure. And this is the publication in Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery, where we compared head to head from a, at least from a retrospective manner, looking at our outcomes. And these are our outcomes. We looked at surrogate outcomes that were very important to us. And what we found was when you compare negative pressure wound therapy with installation with six minutes to dwell or 20 minutes to dwell, compared that with standard negative pressure, it was superior in many of these important surrogate outcomes that we were looking at. Therefore, our practice radically changed um, and it became the standard of care where we essentially replaced standard negative pressure with that of installation therapy. Over the course of many years, from our experience and others, we formulated multiple consensus guidelines. The first one of the modern era, at least, was in 2013, where we hosted a variety of different surgeons and experts in uh, negative pressure and that of um, of, of uh, antiseptics, and we came out with nine consensus guidelines. And that was the first, um, as I mentioned earlier, the first group that, that met to discuss this therapy. Then in 2015, some of the same members came back, and we added some other members as well to further refine the guidelines that we had produced in 2013. And then 2016, a group of um, largely nurses came together and uh, develop their own sort of practical guidelines for the use of negative pressure wound therapy with installation. And then 2018, the consensus uh, guidelines were again re readapted to the evolving thought that we had about negative pressure wound therapy with installation. And finally, in 2020, we recently published this, which is what we're discussing today, which is um, which which was entitled "Negative Pressure Wound Therapy with Installation International Consensus Guideline Update." And as you can see, things and authors have changed over time, but it became much more inclusive and diverse. Even that was also true the first time we met in 2013 as well, but it reflects our current clinical practice and the use of this device. For the remainder of this presentation, I'd like to discuss in deep greater detail some of the consensus statements that were concluded from our last meeting and Dr. Abi Yunus will also finish out the other consensus statements that I do not cover. The first one is depicted here in this slide where we discuss the general use statements of using installation therapy. And what we came out with were the following. MPWTID may be used as an adjunct therapy in the following acute, chronic, or infected wound types. That includes things like traumatic wounds, surgical wounds, including dehiss wounds, diabetic wounds, venous leg ulcers, pressure injury ulcers, wounds with exposed intact bone, wounds with treated underlying osteomyelitis, in fact, infected or contaminated wounds in the presence of orthopedic fixation hardware, full thickness burns after excision, wounds resulting from evacuation of hematoma, and then hemostasis, when hemostasis is achieved, and wounds that are bridged between stage of delay and amputation. If you look at this table, this consensus statement one table, the only, only consensus guideline that was not a vast majority, meaning 13 out of 13 uh, people that were present or uh, 12 out of 13 that were present was the 10 out of 13 that were present that agreed that 
Installation therapy is an appropriate adjunct to therapy for wounds with exposed synthetic mesh over an intact abdominal wound. Here's just some examples of cases that um, uh, I've had personal uh, experience with. This is a patient with uh, multiple abscesses um, on his right lower extremity that required, um, as you can see, fasciotomies. Uh, There's a large purulent um, pocket in the uh, posterior aspect of his lower leg and ankle. Patient received installation therapy, um, and this patient was bridged essentially to skin grafting and free tissue, tr free tissue transfer by my microsurgery partner. Here's another example. This is a uh, C-section incision, and the patient um, had dehistus incision. There was bacterial present, um, and the patient required in installation therapy, and uh, we got the wound clean, and the patient was ultimately closed. Here's another example of a patient with, uh, this is a diabetic patient with exposed tendon with an abscess on the plantar aspect of the foot, had prior amputations, uh, and was transferred to our hospital. The patient was then excisionally debrided in the OR, staged for closure, uh, which included using installation therapy in preparation for the closure procedure. This is consensus statement number two, which is um, recommended compatible uh, solutions, uh, compatible solutions that may be used with MPWTID uh, dressings include normal saline, hypochlorous acid, sodium hypochlorite, acetic acid, and polymethylene bigonide. Uh, plus betaine. Um, essentially, when you look through this list, um, I just want to highlight the ones that were not recommended, uh, in, including the one uh, regarding silver nitrate and um, sulfur-based solutions like sulfur, sulfonamide. Um, I will tell you, this is an evolving area. Initially, antiseptics were um, thought to be really important as far as using with the use of this device. But as we've learned, the more experience we get, it may not have to do with the antiseptic solution or the solution selection at all. I know that many people are, 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 are very particular as far as what kind of solutions they like to use. And my, my um, recommendation would be to use whatever you like. Uh, it seems like uh, many different kinds of solutions can be very helpful. One of the things that was interesting um, uh, from a study perspective, this was a porcine model study looking at use of saline. Um, and what they reported was that saline actually increased the granulation thickness compared to just using standard negative pressure, uh, whether it was on a continuous or intermittent setting. Um, I wanted to test this to see if indeed it did not matter what kind of solution you used. So I designed a prospective randomized comparative study looking at uh, use of normal saline versus uh, polyhexanide with betaine and using the same surrogate outcome endpoints that I had discussed with you guys earlier uh, that were important to us, including length of hospitalization, number of surgeries, so on and so forth. And this was published in plastic reconstructive surgery as well. And the outcomes were very interesting. It turns out that um, that uh, normal saline actually did just as well as polyhexamide with betaine, uh, which is a very potent antiseptic, which um, has a lots of studies that will back up its efficacy uh, and effectiveness against wide range of bacteria. We were really surprised that normal saline did as well as it did. On one point, normal saline actually did better than uh, PHMB, and that was time to final surgical procedure, which actually was very surprising. And the end result of this was, um, in our conclusion section, was to say that you can use whatever solution that you want. I'm not advocating that you use normal saline only. I'm saying that it is a safe, effective choice. Um, and as far as cost is concerned, normal saline is um, relatively inexpensive. This is consensus statement number three, where MPWTID is not recommended. This includes things like uh, where wounds where there's exposed unprotected organs and vessels, uh, where there's undrained abscesses, and it's really not recommended uh, to as a bolster dressing, for example, over skin grafts or other biological materials, and it's not recommended for acutely ischemic wounds as well.
Consensus statement number four, where to use MPWTID with caution. As we've learned more about this technology, we're starting to sort of deviate from the, uh, from the um, original guidelines that we had. And these are some of the considerations that you all should be thinking about. Um, MPWTI may be used with caution in wounds that contain appropriately protected vessels and organs. And so, for example, if you wanted to use a non-adherent dressing over top of, uh, of the foam dressing or below the foam dressing, excuse me, uh, that may be an option. Uh, MPWTI may be used with caution wounds that contain appropriately protected tendons, ligaments, and nerves. And you can see that um, especially when you think about tendons, ligaments, and capsule that tend to desiccate, I think what happens with installation therapy is actually rehydrates that area and prevents attachment. And that was one of the reasons why uh, people wanted to use an interfa interface dressing between the foam and the surface of the wound. Well, if you're constantly or you've programmed the installation piece of this, then it's less likely to adhere to the underlying tissue. Number four in this part, or excuse me, number three in this part was MPWTID may be used with caution wounds with explored tunnels. Again, I think that um, can be used in those cases. I think you should still be mindful and make sure that you understand where all the spaces are and the empty spaces are. Number four of this consensus statement, MPWTID may be used with caution wounds with explored areas of undermining. Again, I don't think undermining uh, as long as it's the same tissue plane um, is something that you should be uh, worried about. Here's some examples. This is after a total knee arthroplasty where we use this technique where uh, what I call the German technique where the foam is buried in contact with either uh, the joint surface or within the joint itself and the skin is closed over the top temporarily. Uh, therefore, the solution can bathe that entire area. Another example is this, where it's a cervical spinal fusion that became infected. You can see that exposed hardware and um, where the foam is really uh, buried underneath the skin uh, margins and closed temporarily until the patient goes back to the OR for um, re-excisional debridement and closure. What this technique allows you to do is really uh, clean out the area in a in an enclosed space so that solution gets there everywhere it needs to get to uh, to, to effectively uh, wash out the, the bacteria, prevents bacteria from adhering. Now there's not a lot of research or papers published on this, but I do want to show you a couple of these. This is uh, the um, uh, an example. This was presented at the AAOS in, in 2019 where these were, uh, where these authors presented this technique essentially. And you can see it there on the bottom left-hand side if you're, if you're curious on what it would look like, where solution was bathing these areas um, in a pre-programmed manner. And then they staged for closure. And then their outcomes, they showed positive outcomes of using uh, installation therapy in this manner versus their standard treatment. This is another example by Mike Timmers, who reported that the use of megapressure wound therapy with installation using an antiseptic solution uh, in the post-traumatic osteomyelitis patient. Uh, the median number of admissions decreased um, and median number of operations decreased um, uh, using in the duration of the hospital stay also decreased using installation therapy versus their historical control. Now both the prior paper or the prior uh, poster and this paper used an antiseptic, um, in this case, an antibiotic solution in the prior case. So there still, I think, is a a need for that, uh, as we discussed earlier, using normal saline is probably okay. But if you were to use these kinds of solutions, just be aware of the cost um, and um, look for any kind of adverse effects. These are the newest consensus guidelines that reflects an ev evolution in thought based on evidence and experience. And I'm gonna hand it over to, uh, let's strike that. I wanna thank you guys for listening to my lecture. I'm going to hand it over to Dr. E.B. Yunus to conclude the consensus statement guidelines that were presented in our manuscript. Thank you very much. Okay, so thank you, Dr. Kim. Now for the remaining uh, recommendations, uh, my disclaimer, um, and this is what we're talking about, which I, this is, for me, the most, single most important innovation in wound care in the past 30 years. 
Um, Dr. Kim refers to, refers to it as an evolution of VAC. I think it's more of a revolution of VAC rather than evolution. And these are the types, uh, these are the three different types of uh, Veriflow dressings. Um, uh, the one on your left is a standard Veriflow, and the one in the middle is the cleanse uh, Veriflow. Now, both are reticulated open cell foam uh, hyphen V. Um, so the, the, the structure is very, very sim is, is similar to each other, as opposed to the one on your right, which in the States, they refer to as a waffle dressing in Europe. It's more like Swiss cheese. This is the cleanse choice. And um, it, the abbreviation for this is, it's again, a reticulated open cell foam, ROCF. Uh, hyphen CC cleanse choice and it's important to make that distinction throughout the presentation you'll see these abbreviations you'll either see ROCFV which can be standard Veriflow or the cleanse dressing or ROCFCC which is the cleanse choice and just please keep that in mind as we go through the cases um, and as Dr. Kim has mentioned Veriflow um, is uh, essentially VAT therapy with installation and dwell so you've got macro strain you've got micro strain going on and you've got the washing uh, as well um, now these are the statements that i'm going to be uh, talking about which you'll which i'll be highlighting with cases we're going to talk about when should you discontinue veriflow we'll talk about uh, what kind of wounds you may want to use the standard veriflow um, uh, we'll also talk about the ideal uh, negative pressure time phase. So how long do you have uh, the cycle running for? So do you wash out the wound every hour, two hours, every three hours? We'll also be talking about the ideal negative pressure setting for both standard rare flow and cleanse choice. We'll also be talking about the dwell time for the installation fluid. Um, in the vast majority of the cases, the installation fluid is saline. Uh, however, there are some situations where you may want to use an antiseptic. And the question is, how long should this dwell time be? Uh, be, uh, uh, be? Um, we'll also touch upon um, uh, what kind of wounds uh, would you want to use the cleanse choice in and what kind of wounds you don't want to use cleanse choice in. And now for the cases, we'll start off with treated osteomyelitis. Of course, you've got to debride the osteomyelitis first. Um, and the evidence for this is Timothy's paper. He got some great results uh, using Veriflow uh, in post-traumatic osteomyelitis, decreased infection occurrence, decreased hospital stay, and decreased number of surgical procedures. Um, and this is our protocol for treating osteomyelitis. You debride, you then apply the Veriflow, uh, you will get to negative or scanty growth. Um, you take bone biopsies, deep tissue biopsies, and then you can target your ant appropriate antibiotic therapy. And then you can decide on soft tissue cover and bone stability. Um, so this was one of my earlier cases, um, a patient who's got juvenile idiopathic arthritis. So she's had pretty much every joint in her body replaced. This left elbow joint was presented to me like this. It's completely open. So what happened here? Well, this is the joint that was put in. It got infected. It got revised again, got infected. So they took it out, put a drain in and gave it to me. And they said, here you go, Dr. Eunice. So what do I do here? Uh, well, I applied Veriflow. I didn't, wasn't too sure what else to do. She had grown every single antibiotic, uh, sorry, she had grown every single bacteria you can think of, and she'd been on every single antibiotic you think of. Um, she was polymicrobial. Um, so I'll put the, this is the first Veriflow dressing change, not much progress. Second dressing change, on each dressing change, every three days we were dividing in the operating room. And look at that nice healthy granulation tissue now we never got to negative growth completely but we went from heavy polymicrobial growth to scanty polymicrobial growth at this point we decided okay i think this wound is ready to be closed i didn't think i never thought we were going to get to completely negative um uh, growth of bacteria um it's high risk wound so applied incisional negative pressure uh, not for one week but for two weeks and this is a wound which is settling down and then it's completely settled down three months later she comes to my clinic, the wound is beautifully healed. And you can, if you look carefully, you can, see, you can see three stab incisions. That wasn't me, that was my colleague, the orthopedic surgeon. I called him up, he didn't tell me about it. I was about to uh, shout at him and he said, Ibi, I just want to let you know, 
that the bone biopsies from the stab incisions are completely negative. I was completely and utterly shocked. Um, so this was fantastic news, which means she could go and see the elbow revisional specialist in the north of England and have a new joint put in. And this was uh, her several weeks after. So um, this case highlights statement number five. Um, you discontinue Veraflow when the clinical goals are met. In this case, we went from heavy growth to scanty growth. And you can see that the wound was full of lovely, healthy granulation tissue. There was lead dead space, and we decided it was ready for closure. And this is her 24 months month on. No signs of infection, full range of movement. And this one case changed our practice completely. This is a, an interesting case, osteomyelitis. Uh, of the mid tibia. You can see the dead necrotic infected bone. But what makes this more complicated is that one of his um, vessels, his anterior tibial vessel, was completely occluded. So he's a super high risk candidate, uh, not an ideal candidate for free flap surgery. So because of that, we debrided the uh, infected necrotic bone, we applied Veraflow, and then we did a bipedical adipofascial flap. This is not something we normally do, but we felt our options were very limited. Um, the flap, however, sadly, unfortunately, uh, partially necrosed, so it should be brided. And now I'm left with a cavity, a wound. And what do I do with this wound? I apply the Veraflow, but the cleanse choice. Um, and the reason for the cleanse choice is because of this picture here. You can see those sort of raised area of granulation tissues, which correspond to the one centimeter wide perforations or through and through perforations in the cleanse choice. And we see this time and time again with cleanse choice. So um, this case highlights that this was the ideal case for the cleanse choice because at least 20 to 40% of the wound was covered with clean, healthy, viable tissue. The wound was also contaminated. And again, we discontinued the Veraflow when we thought we've got some uh, healthy granulation tissue and uh, we felt the wound was then ready for coverage. So what do we do for coverage? We applied a one-stage dermal uh, template. Uh, this was Integra, a skin graft at the same time, and bolstered it with um, a vac dressing. Um, and this is in post-op. Um, reasonably good mobility, fully healed, no, and importantly, absolutely no signs of infection. Um, what about when you've got an implant infected or exposed that you can't remove? Um, these are really difficult uh, situations. Um, I, I absolutely love this paper by Burkhard Lenner. He, again, had a very challenging group of patients where he was trying to salvage or retain infected metalwork. And he used Veraflow with polyaxonide and, and, and got some fantastic results, huge improvement compared to the standard of care. So when I got this case, I remembered, I thought of his paper. I call this the bionic leg. Again, essentially, she's a patient with juvenile idiopathic arthritis, and her entire left leg is essentially prosthesis. It's foreign material. Um, she's had revision after revision of this leg. And this is a CT scan. As you can see, she's had several operations on her right knee as well. Again, a right knee replacement, several revisions. Uh, but the leg I want you to focus on is the left leg. It's... Uh, not only a knee replacement, but there's a long stem going right up to the uh, proximal aspect of the femur and all the way down to the ankle. Uh, now, after a final revision, she ended up with a dehiscence of a wound. I did a bog standard gastrocnemius flap, muscle flap with a skin graft, and the larger wound healed well. The smaller wound had closed directly, but it opened up again. I closed it again. I applied negative pressure, but it opened up again. So I brided it. And when I divided it, I was squeezing cloudy, turbid fluid uh, from uh, the proximal part of the leg, which means that this fluid, this cloudy, turbid fluid, was running along the, running along the entire length of the prosthesis. So it's not by me doing a nice flap, uh, putting a lid on the infection. I had to get the infection cleared uh, that was surrounding the prosthesis um, from the top to the bottom of this leg. Um, we sent the fluid off to microbiology, it grew Staphorus, Muribalis, Pseudomonas, just remember the Pseudomonas. Uh, so what did I do? I opened up the leg further, uh, and the reason I did this because I wanted to tunnel the Veraflow through. Uh, and I used saline, I used an antiseptic solution, and I even used acetic acid because I eradicated two out of three bugs, but I was struggling with the Pseudomonas. Um, 
But then I found some hypochlorous-based antiseptic solutions. And where did I hear about hypochlorous-based solutions? When I went to SAWC in Las Vegas in, um, you know, in the fall, in 2018. And the, a lot of the American wound experts were talking about hypochlorous-based solutions. So I came back and I, I knew I had this sort of challenging case and I found some hypochlorous-based solution in the form of granudicin, which has got uh, an EU mark. Um, uh, so I could use it in the UK. And this is how I tunneled it through the leg. I opened up the leg proximally and in the middle to tunnel the cleanse dressing through. The cleanse dressing is stronger and firmer than the standard black Veriflow dressing. And then I close the skin over it. So this is the first example you'll see in my presentation of the in and out technique where you are able to pretty much tack the skin over the Veriflow. So you're not having to leave the wound completely and utterly open. Um, I've used this technique a lot. Um, uh, and uh, you can see that the Veriflow was tunneled along the entire length of the prosthesis. So, um, and this highlights statement number six. Um, uh, standard Veriflow should be used in wounds which are contaminated. This one was with a heavy bioburden. There's uh, a biofilm around this prosthesis, which I'm trying to disrupt. And this was chronic infection has been there for years. A CRP uh, was between 50 and 200 for the past three years. Then I, um, after eradicating this, well, what I thought would, after thinking I'd eradicated the pseudomonas with the uh, hypochloric acid uh, solution, I did a, a large latissimus dorsi free flap with a skin graft, which had some delayed healing. And this is a one year post-op. But the interesting aspect to this is that at two weeks, three weeks and four weeks post-op, she had the collection around the prosthesis behind the muscle flap. We aspirated this on those three occasions. We sent her off extended culture reports. There was nil growth, no pseudomonas. So using the hypochlorous acid with the Veriflow, we managed to eradicate that pseudomonas that we couldn't eradicate with saline or any of the antiseptic or even acetic acid. And this was very exciting. And this is her 18 months later with a CRP consistently in single figures. And remember her CRP was between 50 and 200 for the past three years. It's now in single figures. She's 18 months after this, um, a Veriflow and big free flap. Uh, she's mobilizing fully with no signs of infection. It's very exciting indeed. And this is a protocol for implant retention. It's very similar to osteomyelitis. So moving on to complex wounds, we'll, come, we'll talk about necrotizing fasciitis first. So this is Brinkhart's paper uh, where they use Veriflow in all sorts of complex wounds. And he found that uh, in 98% of the cases, they achieved complete healing. This is not my case. It's a case that was given to me uh, by a colleague of mine. Um, she had debridement of her right leg, necrotizing fasciitis, and then a skin graft. Uh, skin graft failed, and um, uh, we couldn't salvage the leg. Uh, we didn't, she didn't have Veriflow, she didn't have VAC, and unfortunately, to save her life, uh, we had to do an above-knee amputation. This is what you want to avoid with necrotizing fasciitis. This is my case, 32-year-old man, necrotizing fasciitis, debrided, a lot of anatomy visible. I applied negative pressure, uh, just straightforward back for a week, and then I did a skin graft without a dermal uh, template. And I thought I was quite pleased with this initially when I saw him in the clinic, but when I look at the pictures, I'm thinking surely I could have done better. Um, there's sort of circumferential uh, absence of soft tissue. He's a young man. He's gonna get chronic lymphedema, chronic, chronic swelling of his foot. And I just wonder whether I could have done better. Now, your best lessons of your biggest mistakes. This is a patient who had necrotic lower leg. We thought it was a necrotizing soft tissue process. In fact, it's pyoderma granulosum. He, we shouldn't have divided him, but we did. Clinically, to make a diagnosis of pyoderma granulosum is very, very difficult. Anyway, we divided him, and we could see that the pyoderma was extending beyond the wound. And in fact, it was extending to the thigh, and he had skip lesions in his flank as well. Um, at this point, I clearly realized surgery was not the answer. So we got the medics involved and we started steroids. And lo and behold, everything started improving. But now I had a problem. We've made a mistake. We shouldn't have done the debridement. Uh, his pyoderma is improving, but I've got to do the best reconstruction of my life uh, because, you know, we shouldn't have done the debridement in the first place. Um, so we, um, I'm trying to get that wound bed ready. I'm trying to get granulation tissue, make it healthy. So I applied Veriflow. And this is a good 
a, a case to highlight statement number six. Um, you know, use Veriflow in wounds that are difficult to granulate. This wound is most definitely difficult to granulate because I'm working against steroids and I'm working against um, uh, the patient's other medical problems. He's immunocompromised. He's got two blood cancers. So I keep going to the Veriflow until I get a nice vascular bed. I'm quite happy. Um, and because we made uh, we should he shouldn't have had the department in the first place. Um, I wanted the best reconstruction of my life, so apply a dermal template. This is Integra with a silicon layer, and I bolster this with a vac. And the reason I bolster with a vac is because Veriflow is not recommended in wounds or over dermal grafts. Um, it's important to keep that in mind. So there you go, the vac's in place. It's not Veriflow, but then it gets infected, and I thought oh my God, I've lost, this, this case is going from bad to worse, I've lost the dermal template. So what do I do at this point? I go back to the Veriflow. And even though it's not recommended in dermal grafts, I now have got an infected dermal graft. And remember, these are recommendations. There are always, there are sometimes exceptions. And as a clinician, you've got to decide what to do um, with the situation you're in. And even though the paper or the, the, the consensus document does it recommend uh, putting Veriflow over dermal grafts? I decided this was infected to salvage it. I had no option but to put it over the dermal graft. So the Veriflow went over the infected dermal graft. And do you know what? I think it salvaged quite a lot of the dermal graft. The leg was then ready for a skin graft. I did the skin graft, uh, adaptive touch interface, bolstered with the vac. And remember, Veriflow is not recommended in uh, wounds over split thickness skin grafts, your skin graft will float away. So then, that's why I used a vac, and that's in post-op. And you can appreciate, there's not much of an indent at all. And compared to my case, where I didn't use Veriflow in the young gentleman, where I didn't use a dermal template, I'm sure you'd agree, his outcome is so much better. And um, I think the way to show quality of life in the presentation is to show function. And what better way to show function, but to show this patient mobilizing. And there's a little indent there, but it's, um, uh, nowhere near as severe as my first case. Um, uh, so moving on. So you, I've learned from that case. So then this 45-year-old orthopedic surgeon who works 20 miles away, type 1 diabetic, comes in when I'm not even on call with necrotizing fasciitis. It really was quite sick. So my colleague uh, who was on call at the time debrided him. You can see there's a lot of tendons exposed. There's a lot of anatomy exposed. Um, and I took on the case because I thought, I think I've got the gold standard for uh, treating Veriflow now. So I uh, applied Veriflow. Um, and why did I apply Veriflow? Because of statement number six, it's perfect for using wounds which are after, after debridement. And again, in wounds that are difficult to granulate. You saw those tendons exposed, they're going to be difficult to granulate. So um, you can see um, I haven't got much granulation tissue over the tendons, but I've got good granulation tissue elsewhere after the debridement. Then I've learned from my previous case, I use a dermal substitute because I want to do a gold standard reconstruction. Remember, he's an orthopedic surgeon. He's got to go back to full-time uh, work, doing heavy duty orthopedic operating, uh, a silicon interface, and bolstering the vac. Remember the statement uh, not to use Veriflow over a dermal template. And I've got um, first dressing change, seventh uh, negative pressure dressing change, and I've got some good granulation tissue, some over the tendons, but not as much as we'd want, which is why I did a one-stage dermal substitute. Um, uh, which means um, dermal template put on and then skin graft at the same time. And we go from here to there, post-op. And remember my first case, which I was perhaps embarrassed about and I thought maybe I could do better. Well, this is the patient who I think has done much better. Uh, I'm sure you'd agree. He's had debridement, Veriflow, dermal template, bolstered with the vac, skin graft, bolstered with a vac. And um, remember what I said about quality of life. This is his function. Um, he's walking. Uh, his Achilles movement is great. There's nice suppleness, uh, mobility of the skin, and he's in back in full-time work doing, and like I said, quite um, large uh, heavy-duty orthopedic op uh, uh, procedures. Moving on to the abdomen. This patient has got a high BMI. She's just high risk. You wouldn't want to do an apronectomy or abdominoplasty in this patient. However, she's got a tumor with a fistula, so we have no option. So to get rid of the tumor, we did an apronectomy approach. Uh, and here comes the tumor. We had to do a laparotomy, we closed her up, and I used an additional negative pressure dressing because she's high risk. 
and um, she comes back with a collection. This is a CT showing a collection in the subcutaneous tissue, and this is a defect in the skin. Um, I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm devastated by this because she's got pus pouring out. We put a drain in, and there's we are draining the collection as well. So my trainee makes a nil by mouth, so she can get to the operating room the next day. However, I decide to keep her on the ward. Instead, I use Veriflow, and I use the cleanse choice. Um, because if I take her to theatre, I'm going to debride and end up making a bigger hole. And the bigger the hole, the bigger the um, soft tissue reconstructive uh, issue that I have. This is what came out of the canister the first three days. First dressing change, a lot better. Uh, second, uh, three, second, period, second period of three days, it's what's coming out of the canister is much cleaner now. And you can see that the wound is pretty much lined with 95% um, of it with healthy granulation tissue. The infection has resolved completely as shown on the CT and reported on the CT. And um, so this case highlights consensus statement 10. Um, cleanse choice dressing can be used or recommended in wounds with a thick exudate. That wound definitely had a thick exudate that was difficult to remove with a standard vac or standard Veriflow. It was contaminated, a heavy bio burden, and it was acutely infected. Um, and we did, of course, start systemic antibiotics. And, you know, she was not an ideal candidate for sharp debridement because, like I said, if I took her to theatre, I probably wouldn't have known, it would have, I would have probably ended up debriding too much. Difficult to know where to stop with debridement. Um, and so because of that, um, my, uh, I didn't have to do any kind of complex reconstruction. And this is a healed up. Uh, it's scarred down a bit. Uh, but it's healed up without needing any um, kind of other surgical intervention. <clears throat> um, at this point, I would also like to highlight, um, using that case as an example, um, when you've got a wound which has got 100% coverage with the dry, intact eschar, there's no point using cleanse choice on it. Uh, you, that needs to be debrided first. If you've got an abscess that's undrained, don't forget, we put a drain in, so that abscess was draining, then again, you don't want to put cleanse choice on it, you've got to make sure you have a way of draining the abscess first. And of course, if a wound is less than one centimeter in size, then there's no point using uh, cleanse choice, a bit of a waste. Moving on to the perineum. This is a immunocompromised patient with leukemia and a high BMI with the multi-resistant multi pseudomonas abscess. Uh, the debridement was done by the gynecologist. I then used cleanse choice. And you can see the macro and the macro strain here. And we eradicated the multi-resistant pseudomonas. And therefore, this wound is now ready for an apronectomy style closure. This patient had an anterior resection uh, in a different country, <clears throat> and he was having his wound. Uh, he got developed necrosis fasciitis, as you can see, debrided. He was having twice daily irrigations on the ward. I've never seen a patient in so much pain. You can see the saline on the sheets of his bed. So I took him to uh, the operating room straight away, and um, twice a week, or every three days, uh, Veriflow. And this is what we achieved from week zero to week five. Uh, I, use, I like to use hydrocolloid to get a good seal. And this is how we uh, place the Veriflow. So uh, this highlights statement number six, uh, standard Veriflow uh, is perfect for use in wounds which are adequately cleansed and debrided. This was debrided, but it was contaminated in the perineum. Perineal wounds are often contaminated, so it's ideal. And talk about contamination, this is what was coming out into the canister. And uh, I later, six months later, he's all healed. I did a little lotus petal flap. He's still got a cetal in place. He's still got a fistula, but his perineum is healed. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, hydrodenitis. Now, for those of you who deal with hydrodenitis, we all know it's a difficult problem. No one really wants to deal with hydrodenitis because the skin is full of pus. This patient who's self-employed, um, uh, had a temporary stoma, so we could go ahead and be aggressive with this uh, perineum, scrotal, and inner thigh hydrodenitis. So I did quite an aggressive debridement. And uh, with hydrodenitis, there's a lot of infection, there's a lot of pus, there's a lot of exudate. So I used the cleanse choice. And this is after the first dressing change. It was so clean. You've got the characteristic appearance of the cleanse choice granulation tissue, those raised one centimeter circles. And I've started, I was able to start tacking the wounds together. And so, again, it beautifully highlights statement number 10. Um, cleanse choice is perfect when you've got thick exudates. 
when you've got a contaminated wound, when you've got heavy buyer burden, and when you've got chronic infection in conjunction with debridement of systemic antibiotics, which is what we did with this gentleman. Um, and then this wound now is ready for um, uh, definitive reconstruction. So we can discontinue as statement five uh, shows negative pressure with installation because the wound is ready for coverage. For me, the coverage is gonna be a skin graft or um, when the wound is stable for standard negative pressure wound therapy. And both apply here because we did the skin graft and we bolstered the skin graft with standard negative pressure therapy with the silicon interface. And I used the uh, standard negative pressure of the closed incisions too, uh, hence the appearance here. And this is in three months later, fully healed. So um, again, this case uh, to reiterate shows that cleanse choice is ideal for wounds with thick exudate contaminated heavy bio burden and chronically infected along with systemic antibiotics. <clears throat> this is quite sad. This is a patient who had a um, AP resection. Uh, they didn't, he didn't have a flap reconstruction. And ended up with a peroneal hernia. It's like a big tail. Uh, because of this, um, this patient who had an AP resection and a pelvic accentuation had a flap reconstruction using his, her rectus muscle from the front and some skin. Except these patients have preoperative radiotherapy, and because of that, occasionally the flaps can the wounds can completely dehiss. So this flap was sitting in the breeze. It was uh, done by a colleague of mine who gave it to me and said, um, you know, uh, Dr. Eunice, uh, can you help with your washing machine? In other words, the Veriflow. So you can see there's a defect in the posterior vaginal wall. Uh, the sacrum is exposed. So what do I do? I use a biological mesh. In this case, it was Stratis. Um, it's an acellular dermal uh, matrix to reconstruct the posterior vaginal wall. And you can see that um, there's a lot of undermining, there's a lot of dead space underneath the flap. So uh, again, statement number 11 says, um, Veriflow should not be used over dermal grafts, whether auto, allografts, xenografts, or synthetic. I did in this case. It was, for me, the right thing to do because the stratus, the acellular dermal matrix, was sitting against the posterior vaginal wall. So I used Veriflow. And um, this was how I placed the Veriflow. And this is the exposed sacrum. I got this sacrum was uh, infected with pseudomonas. I got the neurosurgeon to shave off the edge of the sacrum because otherwise you'd get a recurrent pressure sore. And this is after the second dressing change. And you can see that the dermal um, matrix, the acellular dermal matrix is intact. It's there, it hasn't disintegrated. And I've got lovely granulation tissue everywhere, including over the sacrum. The sacrum has lost its sharp edge. I've eradicated pseudomonas around the sacrum with uh, a week long of Veriflow and it's ready to close. So it's now I'm ready to discontinue the negative pressure wound therapy with installation because it's ready for closure and it's ready for closure with incisional negative pressure wound therapy. And this is a healed and um, she, um, patients, this patient uh, sends me a Christmas card every year now because she's so grateful. Um, she was in a desperate state. Pressure sores. I think some of you will come across pressure sores. These are a challenge. This patient, as you can see with my markings, had a previous buttock rotation flap for an ischial pressure sore. Uh, pressure sores come back. So we've pretty much stopped doing flaps in most patients who've got pressure sores. Uh, I did a, we've got an MRI scan, which shows that there was osteomyelitis of the right skin and the inferior pubic ramus with deep ulceration. So we did a joint debridement with the orthopedic surgeon, big cavity uh, as well, as you can see. Um, we, we, we sent all the deep tissue bone off, we got a microbiology because of the big cavity and because uh, it was still, you know, relatively um, uh, uh, contaminated, we used a cleanse choice. With the cleanse choice, again, along with statement 10, um, I had some healthy tissue to work with. I didn't have 100% coverage of dry and healthy eschar. Uh, so the cleanse choice here was very appropriate and it was chronic infection and we started antibiotics and we had done the debridement with the orthopedic surgeon. You can see the cavity is getting smaller and then we went to standard vac and this is him completely healed. Um, what about more the simple straightforward infected wounds? Um, you've heard uh, the infamous Paul Kim speak. Um, he's published many papers on Veriflow and one of my favorite papers he's published is when he's compared uh, Veriflow 
with a standard, a Veriflow with standard negative pressure. And he found when you use Veriflow compared to standard negative pressure wound therapy, you reduced visits to the operating room, you reduce time to final surgery, you reduce hospital stay. So you so if you're reducing hospital stay, you reduce in overall cost. It's a great paper, one of my favorites. So what about this patient? The general surgeon tells me she's 92 year old, she's not very well, she's got herpes zoster as you can see, uh, but she's got this horrible abscess that he's done incision and drainage on. But you can see it's all quite mucky. Now the problem is, this is a 92 year old great grandmother She's not very fit and she's not suitable for a general anaesthetic uh, in the OR. So there's a lot of exodent. It's going to be difficult to remove with standard VAC or standard Veriflow. Um, and she's really not a candidate for sharp debridement at all. So what do I do? I use um, Cleanse Choice. And remember, Cleanse Choice is not recommended in wounds which are completely covered with an intact, dry intact SCAR. This isn't. It's just a lot of slough. And remember, the abscess has been drained here. It's not undrained. So I use a cleanse choice and look at that. First dressing change, second dressing change. And then she's fit enough and well enough for one procedure in the operating room, one chance to get her closed. I undermine some skin flaps. I close her. I protect my incision for not one week, but for two weeks with a uh, incisional uh, negative pressure dressing called uh, Provena. I put the track pad, uh, bridge the track pad to the side so she get she doesn't get pressure off of the tube and she's all fully healed moving on to breast i do a lot of breast reconstruction we do these nipple sparing mastectomies in these high risk uh gene patients the BRCA patients and i use this sort of incisional negative pressure bras and you know for these patients uh we try our best to give them breasts that look as good uh, if not better than what they had before so this patient's had a bilateral nipple spray mastectomy and she's had a reconstruction with implants and um, an acellular dermal uh, matrix, uh, essentially a biological mesh. Um, this patient had a similar operation, but this time it was um, not nipple sparing, except this is one of my earlier cases, <clears throat> and this was my first breast implant infection. And I called my mentor, my colleague, and he said, well, uh, Ibi, you're gonna have to remove the implant, and you're gonna have to, you're not gonna be able to put one in for months on end. Of course, when you do that, the skin shrinks down, you, uh, the scar gets tethered to the chest wall. Uh, it's horrible tissue to work with. I had to release the tethered scar. I had to do fat transfer. And nine months she had to wait before I could insert an implant and fully expand it. So she'd live with that. So she had lived with that breast for nine months. Difficult for her, difficult for me as a surgeon. And not only that, the scars are on different levels, the nipples are on different levels. It doesn't really compare to the first case I showed you. So um, is there a way out of this? Well, we think we might find a way, and this is our protocol uh, for salvaging infected breast implants with Veriflow. So we don't have to have, we don't, and, and this, is, this, this is the paper that inspired me. So how do we do this? Uh, this is a bilateral mastectomy patient, left breast got infected, the implant came out, we put the Veriflow in, we took tissue biopsies, uh, we uh, changed the Veriflow after day three, put, uh, this is my Veriflow of choice, the cleanse, it fills a pocket really well. Again, Veriflow on the inside and on the outside, we call it the in and out technique. And we change the Veriflow dressing. It's amazing how much Veriflow dressing comes out. On day 10, after doing two Veriflow dressing changes, after achieving negative microbiology after the first dressing change, the new implant goes in. Not nine months later, but 10 days later. And um, because our clinical goals are met, the wound is as clean as it was, as if we were doing the surgery for the first time. It's infection free. It's got lovely granulation tissue. Um, this is the first case of breast implant salvage Veriflow in the UK. So I take no chances. I close her and I use incisional negative pressure. I check out CRP every two weeks and it remains low throughout. This is about 12 weeks fully expanded. 18 months later, exchange the expanders for implants. No signs of infection. And then I do nipple reconstructions. But let's compare. This is my patient who did not have Veriflow, who had to live without a breast. I left breast for nine months. I finally got an expander in. I finally did nipple reconstructions, but you can see the scars are on different levels. The nipples are on different heights. This is my patient who had also an implant infection on the left side. However, she only had to live without a breast for 10 days in hospital. Uh, she went back home with uh, a new reconstruction. And um, 18 months later, I exchanged the expanders with implants, did nipple reconstructions. I'm sure you'd agree. It's a much better aesthetic outcome. 
much better for her emotionally uh, as well as me as her surgeon. I was so excited about this. My wife, that I told my wife who's a nurse, she made me a pie that night when I came home, um, except she put two breasts on the pie and be my wife, she made sure one breast was much smaller than the other. She never makes life easy for me at home. We've done actually, it says 18, but we've done 24 cases now of uh, uh, acutely uh, uh, acute infections, uh, acute, acutely infected breast implant reconstructions with 100% success with salvage with Veriflow. And this will be submitted for publication very soon. And this is our protocol. Essentially, remove the implant, uh, <clears throat> send off the fluid, they'll give you your microbiology, uh, put the Veriflow in, change it once or twice, and then either on day seven or day 10 to 11, uh, the breast pocket should be ready for a new implant. I do hernia work as well. Uh, this is a hernia I, I repaired with a general surgeon and um, everyone looks at the melon-sized lateral hernia, but it's also got a parambolical as well. Uh, he's a big biological mesh and um, <clears throat> this is uh, his post-op. It's very satisfying work. This is my most one of my more recent cases. Uh, this lady had a, a young lady uh, in her late 20s, had a terrible accident in Fiji, lost almost all of her right rectus muscle, that's skin graft of the bowel, and I was able to reconstruct her and give her a new belly button and give her a much pleasing uh, abdomen and uh, completely changed her life. Um, so is there any evidence for uh, the in and out technique? There isn't at the moment. And let me highlight the in and out technique, but let me highlight with the story. This is um, a 35-year-old mother of five children. She's diabetic. She was referred for bariatric surgery, but she did not proceed. She was 160, kilo, 160 kilograms at the time of conception and 220 kilograms at the end of pregnancy. She was going to be sent to a district general hospital to have a normal vaginal delivery, but the baby had complications. So she was transferred to University College Hospital, my hospital. Baby was in, in distress, so at two o'clock in the morning, they did the right thing and they did an emergency cesarean section. Uh, baby alive and well, mother went back to labor ward with no issues. Remember, this patient is 220 kilograms. I then got an email saying, Mr. Eunice, can you help? This patient, six days after emergency cesarean section, with a BMI of 80, has got necrotizing fasciitis. And uh, I couldn't believe that it was 80, and they said, actually, they checked again, it was actually 83. And this is what I saw when I went to ITU. And she'd only been to the operating room. Um, uh, someone had used a vac. The vac's not going to do much there. There's a lot of dead tissue, necrotic tissue. So what do I do? I strap the ab abdomen back. I start moving the necrotic tissue. Now, the basic principles of surgery is um, an infected necrotic wound, you do not close. Uh, now, the, my problem here is that if I leave this wound open, how am I ever going to get it closed? The skin's going to retract. And I can't do a flap here in a BMI 83 patient, no chance. So what do I do? I had to think on my feet. How am I going to manage this wound? She's going to have ongoing infection. She's going to develop more necrotic tissue. So I tap the wound together and I develop the in and out technique. I insert the Veriflow on the inside of the wound. So the entire cavity of the inside of that wound is lined with Veriflow. And this is what I'm doing here. I'm lining the cavity with Veriflow. I'm making sure that I can see the Veriflow through the gaps in the wound. So that's the in part of the in and out technique. Then I apply the outer part of the dressing. So the outer Veriflow, and this is a standard Veriflow note that it's in communication with the Veriflow on the inside. And um, I staple that all along the wound. So the Veriflow on the inside is in contact with the outside <clears throat> and I'm protecting the skin with some hydrocolloid. Next, I make two holes on either side. Um, on the left side, I put the fluid port in. Uh, so the fluid is going to go through this port into the Veriflow. Once so I've done that, I uh, put the suction port on the other side. So the fluid goes on one side and then it'll be it'll dwell for a period of 10 minutes and then it'll be soaked, sorry, sucked out from the other side uh, at a pressure of minus 125. Um, and attaching, it's quite, people think Veriflow is quite complex, it's not. It's quite simple. Two tubes to attach, white to white, orange to orange. Uh, once you've attached the tubes, uh, it's all quite straightforward. You go to the vac ultra pump and uh, you select the Veriflow uh, setting. And this is what I'm doing. You've got the option to select a vac as well. I've turned Phyllisys off. You can use it. Phyllisys is very useful. It will tell you how much fluid you can put in. 
in that window I could probably put in 300 mils. However, it's the weekend, I don't need leaks, so I decide on 100 mils. My serving time is going to be 10 minutes, but for testing purposes on table, I'm going to go for 30 seconds. And my vac therapy time here, I've decided it's going to be three and a half hours. Um, and you can see there's a bit of a leak there. Um, so um, uh, because of the leak, we go back to the patient. We make sure there's a good seal between the tegaderm and the hydrocolloid. So we get our hands on the patient. Um, you know, you warm up the hydrocolloid, you press the, two, the tegaderm to the hydrocolloid, and we, should, and we get a good seal, and it's working really, really well. So this uh, support statement number six, standard Veriflow, uh, is, is absolutely perfect for wounds that are debrided, as this one was clean wounds, contaminated wounds, heavy bio burden, which this wound will have, uh, and the chronically infected wounds, and our wounds are difficult to granulate. And this is gonna be a challenge to granulate this wound because the skin flaps are so thick. She's gonna get a lot of fat necrosis. Um, with standard Veriflow, uh, the, the standard negative pressure time phase is two to three hours. Uh, you can see there, I decided on three and a half hours because that was a weekend. I didn't want too much cycling, but um, two to three hours is perfect. Uh, a lot of people I know go for two and a half hours. So every two and a half hours, there's a cycle of washing and uh, dwelling. Um, as you saw, the recommended negative pressure setting is minus 125, no matter which type of airflow you use. And the soak time is 10 minutes. And unless I, of course, use an antiseptic, then I may increase the dwell time to 20 minutes, like I did with the implant, uh, with, uh, with the, with the uh, orthopedic um, implant retention uh, salvage case. Um, I increased my <clears throat> dwell time for 20 minutes because hypochlorous acid works better um, if you increase uh, the soak time. So this is a second look. Uh, you can see there's a lot of fat necrosis. You can see all the variable on the inside that I took out. So I kept debriding and repeating the in that technique. And, I, and you can see all the fat necrosis that comes out into the canister, especially in the canister and in the patient. So after the fifth and final look, there's still some uh, necrotic uh, fat, um, at some point you've got to make a decision uh, to close the wound. Remember she's got a baby at home and uh, I felt that the variable had done its job so I inserted two large drains and I closed the wound and it's a long scar, a lot of dead space. BMI 83, she's going to have more fat necrosis, she's got decreased perfusion of skin edges, she's going to get edema, there's going to be tension across the wound edge when she mobilizes and shearing as well. So I use uh, a negative, uh, incisional negative pressure to increase the perfusion at the wound edge and beyond, and to reduce the dead space using topical negative pressure as well as the large suction drains. Plenty of evidence about using prophylactic negative pressure wound therapy in high-risk cesarean sections. And I used four provenas, I call it the provena quad. And this is the dressing changed, uh, the change. You can see the leakage from the wound, need a bit of tidy up. I did two weeks of uh, provena quad, and then I kept provena going for several weeks after that. Even at the 11th week, there's still some discharge from the wound. At the 12th week, I took it off, and this is uh, completely healed after 11 weeks. And this was before, and this is after six months post-top. Uh, we got there in the end. Several months later, I got another BMI 83 case. She's, she's got a um, uterine tumor, so she needs a hysterectomy. They couldn't do it laparoscopically, so reluctantly, we had to do an open approach. After removing over 10 kilos of tissue, I, instead of closing her, because I thought without any kind of undermining, we envisioned some fat necrosis, so I did Veriflow, but I just did two dressing changes and I closed her, but I closed her too quickly. And um, it just shows that uh, the five Veriflow changes I did in the first case was the right thing to do, because <coughs> I felt I could take a bit of a shortcut here with this patient, but I paid the price. If I'd probably done another Veriflow change or maybe another two and then closed her, I probably wouldn't have ended up with this dehiscent situation. Um, so it's important to know when to discontinue negative pressure with, uh, with installation. Um, you know, you've got to be sure the wound is ready for surgical closure. I rushed it on the last case. And when the wound is ready and stable for uh, standard negative pressure wound therapy. Uh, in the end, she did heal, <coughs> but it took longer in the end. Uh, but she's a very grateful patient. This is a patient, again, a necrotizing fasciitis patient. But this time her BMI, BMI is just over 20. And you can see the pus coming out of the cesarean section wound. So I took her to the operating room and you can see the necrotic tissue there along the scar. And um, I debrided this and there's me debriding the tissue. And I can't debride, I'm debriding as much as I can, but there's some 
I can't, I don't want to open the fascia. So there's a little bit of infecting the crotchet tissue left, uh, which is why I decided in this case to again repeat the in and out technique, but this time use the cleanse choice. The cleanse choice is available. So the cleanse choice goes in because there's a little bit of, you know, um, a little bit, a little portion of that wound is still um, got a sort of uh, substance, you know, material that I think is infected and necrotic. And um, I do the in and out technique by using a cleanse choice underneath and cleanse over the top. These are the tegaderms being placed. And then I um, turn the filler cyst off. You can use it if you want to, but I pretty much decided I was going to put 50 mils through this wound. My soak time again, it was going to be 10 minutes. However, for testing purposes, before she comes off table, I opted for uh, 30 seconds. And because I'm using the cleanse choice, um, and because there's quite a lot of infection there, I want to increase the frequency of my washing. So instead of going for uh, three and a half hours or three hours or two hours, I've gone for one and, one and a half hours. So every one and a half hour, that wound will get a wash uh, with saline. Um, and uh, there's a bit of highly, highly, high, high, high leak rate there. So go back to the patient, we'll put our hands on the dressing, uh, make a good seal around the flow. And once you do that, and I advise you do that all the time, because you'll find this will make the biggest difference to your leak rate. Um, and you will go back to the uh, flow, and you'll find that leak rate has come down completely. So th that case supports this statement. Cleanse choice can be used in wounds uh, where you have got, you know, 20 to 40% of the wound is covered with clean, healthy, viable tissue, which it was in this case. Um, it was contaminated, it was acutely infected. And again, I didn't want to sharply bribe the fascia. If I'd done that, I would have gone into the peritoneal cavity, which is what I didn't want to do. And this was a pre-op. You can see the skin's red. You can see the little um, uh, uh, opening along an inferior scar. Uh, she's very edematous, and this is her post-op, uh, completely healed. So now this is my car. It's uh, an old-style Land Rover Defender. I think it's one of the most recognizable cars in the world. You see it in uh, uh, all sorts of extreme environments and conditions, whether it's the mountains of Africa, the deserts of the Sahara, or uh, the ice of Antarctica. Um, whatever you throw at this car, it can deal with, which is why this car has been around over 70 years, which is why uh, uh, it's one of the most recognizable of all cars in the world. And for me, Veraflow, a negative pressure with installation, is very much like my car. Whatever you throw at it, it can deal with. Um, I promise you now, and I'll repeat it again, um, I think Veraflow is the single most important, important innovation in wound care in the past 30 years. It's, uh, it's a revolution, more than an evolution, of uh, negative pressure wound therapy and um, I urge you to embrace it because you'll achieve some uh, amazing wins. Thank you very much.